What's up, guys? Welcome back to my YouTube channel, Monica Talk Cyber, and a fantastic new episode of my podcast show, We Talk Cyber with Monica. If you wish to hack your career, grow personally, or learn about tech, cybersecurity, or leadership, then hit the subscribe button right away. Today's episode is dedicated to cybercrime and critical infrastructure. This is Monica Talk Cyber. In today's episode, we'll be talking to a chief security advisor, a dear friend, a security and industry expert who has been working in the industry for over decades. We'll be talking to Sarah Armstrong Smith from Microsoft on how is the threat landscape and the cyber criminals evolving? What are some of the key factors for better defense going forward? What are some of the key recommendations to combat cyber crime and cyber attacks specifically? related to critical infrastructure. What are some of the key challenges of cloud, especially when it comes to sensitive data and how to protect it? How do we protect privacy and include ethics, especially with the convergence of the physical, the digital, and the biological worlds? So if you wish to learn, grow, and be a part of this journey, then hit the subscribe button, click on the notifications bell, and let's meet our guest right away. This is We Talk Cyber with Monica. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Monica. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. It's so lovely to have you on the show today. Um, would you like to say a few words about yourself and maybe share a fun fact with the audience? Yeah. Hi, everybody. So my name's Sarah Armstrong-Smith. I'm a Chief Security Advisor at Microsoft. I've been working in technology and cyber for over 20 years. Uh, my fun fact is I'm absolutely nutty for dogs. Love, love, love dogs. <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, I love dogs as well. It's beautiful. And my dogs are my babies. Yeah, I've had oh. seven together. <laughs> wow, that's very interesting. Incredible. Welcome to the show and let's get uh, right in the conversation. So critical infrastructure. Um, if you look into the threat landscape over the last decade or even more, we have seen obviously cyber attacks increasing towards critical infrastructure, especially over the last years. And now with the COVID-19, with the pandemic, we have seen more and more cyber attacks towards the health sector, towards the hospitals, uh, pharmaceuticals that are doing vaccines. We've also recently seen um, a lot of attacks on the on the maritime industry. I mean, if you look at it, more than 90% of the global trade is seaborne. And if we are able to do a massive cyber attack or global cyber attack that, that affects the entire maritime industry globally, that would really impact our global trade right away. And we've seen also the financial impact and so on. So um, what are you seeing in this field? What, what are your observations in terms of cybersecurity and how cyber, risk, uh, cyber risks are evolving for the critical infrastructure? Yeah, I think it's um, really evident that the level of exposure and risk is really increasing. Um, I think over the last few years, we've seen that interplay between IT, operational security, and also IoT. And so much more is actually going digital. So much more is being uh, interconnected into cloud. And that exposure is increasing because there's so much more connectivity. Mm -hmm. So it used to be that we used to have an air gap, let's say, between a lot of the operational um, capabilities, IoT, but actually all of those things combined. And as you said, over the last year in particular, with COVID-19, with lots of people working remotely, that's really increased the threat, um, particularly the exposure 
um, an increase in cyber threats as a result of cyber criminals taking advantage of the situation, uh, particularly in critical national infrastructure, as you say, higher threats within hospitals, first responders, energy, financial services, all of those combined. And it's really identified the fragility within the supply chain, but also that interdependency across lots of different countries, um, as we're seeing that played out right now. Yeah, and and if you look at a lot of these reports that come out uh, regarding the threat attackers' motivations, um, financial gain is still number one and has been for, I think, like ever. I mean, obviously, there are other reasons as well, but financial gain is usually a primary reason. And if you see as our dependency on these uh, sectors grow and as the sectors become more and more digital, the chances of somebody, for example, paying ransom just to get the operations back is higher. And and this is what also the cyber attackers and the cyber threats are banking on or trying to get the best buck for that. Um, what challenges are you seeing um, in the critical infrastructure industry towards the sectors with more digitalization going on? Well, a lot of it is that ability to operate um, in the cloud. Um, So actually, many companies were not set up to work in the cloud. So even with COVID, there's been a mass acceleration. Um, And many, and when you think about how many people are working remotely, uh, they weren't set up to be able to do that. So they've actually had to rethink a lot of their models, a lot of the way they, how they operate. Um, Even if you think about users, they're having to bring their own devices, um, there's so much data uh, and there's hybrid models. So you've got a mix of on-prem, you've got cloud, you've got literally got data everywhere. Um, and that's a real challenge in terms of how do you secure all of that? How do you get visibility of all of those things combined? How do you keep your users secure? And how do you keep them productive? And as you said, cyber criminals love a crisis. Uh, <laughs> so they're there to exploit a crisis it's really something that um, companies need to be mindful of about these changes in tactics, but also putting all of these threats into context with what's going on in their own market, but also across different sectors as well. Um, And I think that's really important to understand all of those things combined. Yeah, and you raise a very interesting point. I mean, first of all, the attackers are obviously, they're following the news, they're seeing how the landscape is changing. Um, the companies were not really uh, ready for working from home right away. Security was really never thought from a perspective of now, okay, everybody will be working remote and we should think of like how do we manage the VOID and other external accesses and also with the cloud and everything that's going on, that definitely increases the complexity. I mean, and one of the things that I feel and I want to hear your thoughts on that is that obviously we've seen now the last three years or even during the COVID-19, the pandemic, um, ransomware has obviously skyrocketed. But if you look even before that, we have recently seen these cloud supply chain attacks and, and attacks towards the vendors and the suppliers. Like if you have APT, Hopper, or if you have the Vipro example or the Cognizant and so on, where the customers' networks are or the supply chains are basically um, incorporating their service providers and then the attackers try to find the easiest way in the entire attack surface to try to exploit uh, whichever is the fastest and the easiest with the most impact. 
how do you see this going forward? Um, how, are you seeing other kind of challenges in this in this sphere? Yeah, and you're absolutely right, because they will try any which way to get in. And that level of sophistication is changing. And actually talking about ransomware, what we're seeing is a lot more human operated ransomware. Um, so it used to be a lot of the things were targeted around individuals. So mm-hmm. encryption of hard drives, for example, they might have tried to get that individual to pay, you know, maybe a couple of hundred pounds, a couple of hundred euros, dollars, etc., to release that um, device. But actually what we're seeing now is at scale. And with the human operated ransomware is they're really taking their time to find their targets. They're doing their reconnaissance. They're looking at who the key individuals are within a company. They're looking at how do they get access into those services. Um, And more importantly, they're actually sitting in your network looking to see how things work, how things operate. Mm. And obviously the crown jewels is to be able to move laterally across your network, to be able to get access into your admins, into your networks. Um, And that's really about their ability to not just exfiltrate large volumes of data, but also to control um, your infrastructure. Uh, And the theory being that if they can do that um, at scale and at mass, you're more likely to pay a much higher ransom. Mm. So that level of sophistication, um, the the extent in which they are deploying some of these services um, is is really key going forward. And I think the other point really is that there's a real concern. It's not just about disruption. It's also about destruction. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, as much as we talk about, there's that real worry with regards to how do you recover from a large-scale event. Mm. And the point that you make here is so important, the point about recovering and also the point about detection, because you mentioned these attackers are in your network and they're doing reconnaissance while they're already in your network. They've gotten a foothold, uh, they've come in, and most of the times we've seen in surveys, we have seen through history, that they usually go undetected from anywhere from 200 days to 300 days for over an year. And, yeah. and the, the, and obviously they get better reconnaissance once they're in the network, right? And they also are very stealthy about it. So one of the keys that I hear, and I also talk a lot about it. And, and I wrote like an article, uh, last year comparing some lessons from the pandemic, which apply directly to cybersecurity, because you're talking about this crisis management. And if you think about the pandemic in one sense and cybersecurity incident management, on the other hand, one of the things that are common is that the real impact and the consequences are found out much later in the stage when we actually even find out, I mean, the detection happens much later. And then even when the detection happens, we are doing all this containment based on the early information, which shows a certain image of what consequences could be. But usually we find out much later, oh, they were completely different than we even thought or imagined. Like with the pandemic as well that happened, we thought initially it was coming, it was only contained in Asia. And then suddenly Europe became the whole epicenter. So these are some of the things that we see now. It's also happening in the cybersecurity industry. Mm-hmm. What are your recommendations? And especially when it comes to critical infrastructure, because really physical security, high value targets and safety um, how do we deal? What are your recommendations? Where should we start, both from a technology perspective and people perspective? Yeah, there's a couple of, couple of things. So we have to um, disrupt the return of investment 
from a cyber criminal's perspective, we've got to make it as hard and difficult for them, not just to get access, but to move across your estate. So that monitoring, that looking for the anomalous behavior is really critical and trying to put some context into all of those things. Um, and actually, the principles of zero trust are really important. Um, and that's really around never trust, always verify and assume compromise. So you should always assume, no matter what level of security, what level of control you think you have, that you've got you've been compromised. From a crown jewels perspective, for me to be able to launch an attack and for me to be able to encrypt services or remove data, I need admin access. So your ability to um, control admin access is absolutely critical. Um, so this is a really around privileged identity management becomes really key, um, but also that just-in-time access as well. So nobody should have open-ended access into your data, into your services, into your network. But it's that's that kind of interesting, and I think I've seen it in the energy sector as well, where they're actually making a request um, to stop all of this integration. So I think if you think about a few years ago, that connecting of operational services to mm. your IT services was to make life easier because you could remotely manage all of that infrastructure. Right. Well, that means that anything which is can be remotely managed by you can be remotely connected to <laughs> by anybody. So actually, as it's one of those air gaps, that segmentation becomes really important. And that's also the separation on devices as well. Um, so for those admins, they should be working on um, hardened separate workstations, hmm. um, you know, and they shouldn't be able to access their email or other corporate services. And that's just another way of air gapping. Um, so and that's that's what's really important is we try and disrupt them as much as possible. And if we assume compromise, how do we stop them getting any further? But also within the data itself, the data needs protection. Mm -hmm. And you touch upon data security, and I want to talk to you a bit about data security and privacy. Let's start with data security first, because yeah, encryption is definitely an important measure. Um, assuming compromise, uh, the first of things would be obviously to restrict the access. The second thing would be, okay, if we do get access, can we still encrypt the data so that the leak, the data breach doesn't really have big impact or consequences in that sense? But we see one of the challenges, at least I've seen many organizations, companies have not really done data classification. I mean, you don't encrypt every data and anything and everything. And especially now with cloud in, it gets even more complicated. Uh, who has the key? Do we do it on premise? Do we do a hybrid model? Do we keep it at the cloud vendor? What are what are the challenges that you see in terms of data security and encryption? And what would be your recommendation? Where one can start? Uh, I think you're right. It's not a one size fits all and you don't just encrypt everything because that increases your overheads and the challenges around that data. So actually, it's about your ability to understand what level of classification needs to be applied to that data. So, uh, you know, if it's personal data, financial data, you might have marketing plans, IPR, those type of things. So it's about understanding what level of protection has to be um, deployed into those various data, is that files, that kind of thing. Um, then data loss prevention. Mm -hmm. um, so who's allowed to have access to it um, and restricting. So even if you were 
accidentally delete you know emailing the wrong uh, the file to a wrong person or that data was able to get outside your organization uh, nobody has the ability to read it without the right access controls but also the ability to revoke the access controls after the fact as well mm-hmm. so that governance layer um, is really important but so is the ability to actually be able to know where your data is in the first place and that's a real struggle Um, particularly as we said with between on-prem hybrid cloud multiple Mm. different devices you've got cloud applications so that deployment of e-discovery is actually really important so actually having that immutable storage a second copy of data is actually really important as well in the context of what we've been talking about Um, because I think a lot of companies will you know in terms of from an availability perspective you know um they will be replicating their data between different data centers, that kind of thing. But if you think that that data could be encrypted, you know, then you how do you get the data back? Because we always say never pay the ransom. Um, so actually, you're therefore you have to be able to recover, uh, and you have to be able to recover quickly. And that means that you have to be able to get hold of a data that is has not been touched or tampered with. Yeah, wonderful, right? And you bring on also a topic about privacy. Um, let's let's talk a bit about that because we have obviously everybody now with our lives. Um, my life, for example, I can say and my entire life is on my mobile phone, uh, whether it's banking apps, whether it's health-related apps, uh, whatever it is, everything from everything that I do on a daily basis is on that mobile. Um, all these apps obviously have become very much more invasive over time. Uh, most of these apps know where I am at every point of time and every point of time. Um, yes, yeah, sure, I can I can not use the app. I can try to um, uh, not have location services on. I can turn Bluetooth off and all these things. But for a normal human being, for a common person, this is not... These are like extreme uh, reactions and things that we need to do because of the paranoia that we have, but they're not really very feasible. And as we go forward with all the interconnection, the smart devices, now um, I have sensor systems at home for the lights and everything. So tomorrow, if say from the um, this Philips Hue things gets hacked, uh, what kind of data is being sent from there, whether they have access to my Wi-Fi, home network or not, with bionic devices coming in, what kind of health data would go into these bionic devices and then what kind of information what kind of network are they connected to so i mean all this technology um has obviously benefits to it but there is also a lot of um issues with regards to how invasive they've become for privacy where does the balance really lie between security and privacy what, what can we really do about it i think it's really important when we talk about privacy that at the end of the day it's a human right to 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 have that privacy and how do you respect that privacy and those boundaries? So you're right, there is that trade-off between um, being able to have access to a lot of these different services um, and, and at your fingertips. Uh, but that shouldn't mean that you just willingly give away all your data. Uh, you should have the ability to control that data. And that data also, again, as to the same principle, also needs to be held in a secure and safe manner. Um, but this, a lot of the onus comes down to the manufacturers of products. Um, so as much as we talk about you know, how do we educate users, we also have to educate consumers. 
So all too often, as you, you spoke about routers, you spoke about devices, they'll just come with a, a standard uh, password and most of those won't actually change the password. So they'll still use their, um, you know, whatever the password, assuming it even came with a password because some of them don't even do that. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, but I think as well, it's the ability that you actually have to turn services on, not turn them off. So I think um, we see a lot of um, applications that automatically have those, like you say, those GPS coordinates and, and those type of things. And your uh, sharing of telemetry data, location data, all sorts of data is actually turned on. And the onus is on the person to actually have to go in themselves assuming they even know how to do that, to actually turn it off. So it should be an off by default. And it should be, therefore, with the right education um, and awareness that the user or consumer is making an informed decision about when to turn it on. But I also think it's not an open-ended on. It should be a, you know, a reminder that oh, you know, every X number of months or something like that, because things may have changed um is then to make sure is this setting still valid um for these reasons um but i think we see that you know i I think the problem we saw when gdpr came about about the cookies and that kind of thing Um, oh i literally was about to ask you that that was my next question (laughs) now that you've touched it i might as well just say it because one of the things i've noticed with gdpr or i've heard a lot of people complain about it is the, the common people the users is that now going on a website you need to click more buttons and accept more things to be able to actually use the service. Yes. So please continue. So what, what are your experiences with that? Well, I think this is this is the issue because I think people are, as you say, they're getting frustrated because the minute you go onto the screen, you get the cookie thing pop up um, and they can't even look at the website and they get frustrated. So they just press OK but they don't know what they're okaying to. Right, exactly. And I think, and, and this is where a lot of the companies are utilizing this as a workaround because embedded behind that is your privacy policy and un- unting different things that you just clicked okay to without actually understanding what it is. And you might just be literally, you know, looking for different things across the internet, lots of different um, uh, products and services, et cetera. But you clicking okay suddenly you're, you're giving that data away or they're, they're tracking you off that website. They're doing all these different things. And unbeknown to you, you know, they're suddenly all these analytics and, you know, what you're doing, how you're doing it is all being collected. And a lot of them have actually asked me, um, what can we do since the GDPR came in for us normal people? We just have to not click and just give away consent to everything. Uh, if you were asked that question, uh, what would your response be? Can anything be done? Part of it is looking at, uh, you know, is being mindful to what it is that you're you're doing on the internet, and what kind of footprint you leave. Um, so I think in terms of social media, um, I think a lot of young people, for example, have spent their life on social media and are almost kind of giving away their privacy. It's almost like privacy doesn't exist as a concept to to young people because they've grown up with a lot of these things. Um, So I think one of the things I would always say is is really think about what you're portraying, what you are uh, proactively putting out there yourself Mm -hmm. into the market in terms of, um, you know, do you enable anybody to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, you know, those type of things? 
uh, what are you sharing on there? So actually just things that you do yourself in your everyday life can actually uh, expose you without you even realizing it. There's this huge amount of Oh, it's open source intelligence, isn't it, actually, at the end of the day? So it's hard because I do think um, the privacy of individuals and the context that we've been talking about with the volume of data and different devices and, and all of these things combined, that privacy is being exploited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there is still, I feel there is a lot that still needs to be done as a part of GDPR, as you say, and now companies are trying to circumvent or find a way around these things by just making them click. And as you said, the onus as well also lies on these companies to do the right thing, the ethically right thing, and um, not exploiting the trust that the customers and the consumers have in them. And at the same time, I feel also it's a responsibility somehow to have that conversation going forward. GDPR, in my experience, is definitely a fantastic step that we took, um, but I feel we are not done yet. Um, would you have some any thoughts on that and maybe a key message for the audience? I, I think you're right. And I think with, with regards to the uh, you know technology, I think you, you had a really important part there about ethics. And doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not because someone's telling you to do it. And I think, you know, as soon as GDPR came out, it was almost out of date because it took so long for, <laughs> for it to come to fruition in the first place. But then you again, you see all these loopholes and things like that. And when you think about advances in um, technology, particularly how many companies are utilizing machine learning. Um, into their process and that is based on information that's fed to it so if that if that data is flawed or it's compromised in any way then the algorithms are also flawed so if you're if you're relying on machine learning capabilities to automate and make decisions uh, <laughs> then those people are being disadvantaged so the companies that are using ml and ai um they have an ethical requirement to make sure that's done in the right way um, and within their own codes of conduct as well. Fantastic. It's so lovely to have you that you came on the podcast show today, Sarah. Um, I think we need to probably have you over once more to talk about ethics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, because this is <laughs> going to be a really big topic going forward. Uh, but I really appreciate it that you came on the show today. Thank you so much for that. Oh, you're very welcome, Monica. Thank you for having me. So that was today's episode of We Talk Cyber with Monica. Thank you for tuning in. I'll be back with more episodes, fantastic guests, and amazing conversations. Until then, take care and stay safe.